Hi, I'm Benjamin Suderbaker. Hi, I'm Edmund Wilson, and this is Political Theory 101. So today on Political Theory 101, we're talking about Montesquieu, and we've got a very special guest, Andrew Asipov, another one of my students on, to talk about Montesquieu. Andrew's just finished up his third year, in which he took a paper on the history of political thought from 1700 to 1890, and Montesquieu was one of his featured topics, one of the topics he knew he was going to do on the exam no matter what. He was very amped to do Montesquieu. By the way, both Edmund and Andrew have now finished their exams, and so we We'll uh, hopefully be able to have a more normal potting schedule from here on out. All right. So, Andrew, why don't you tell the audience, what do you love about Montesquieu? Why is it that you knew that you were going to answer on Montesquieu, no matter what the questions were on your exam? Thank you, Ben. Um, Well, the reason I loved Montesquieu so much as a topic, um, which was quite unexpected at first, because when I first started reading, you know, set text, bird of the laws, I thought to myself, oh, you know, it's just just another one of these 18th century theorists is going to be about liberty and a few other things. And then I realized it was much, much deeper than that because Montesquieu's work, not only in the spirit of the laws, but in his other texts, uh, I mean, on the Romans and then on his unpublished work on the Persian letters, uh, on the thoughts about universal monarchy, it takes a whole sort of backdrop of Louis XIV's absolutism in France and talks about that in relation to ancient states, in relation to modern states, in relation to commerce, war, conquest, and trade. And it brings all these things together, a lot of things which you guys have already been discussing, and comments on many of the debates that have already been occurring. So not only the ancient modern debate, but also the luxury commerce debate, which of course is going on during this time. And then of course, Montesquieu comes in with a few things of his own, such as the separation of powers, which then goes on to influence a lot of modern governments, even in this day and age, and many political events that stem from that. Um, But perhaps most interesting is his approach to honor and the way that that relates to what he um, kind of sees as his solution to solving um, modern states. So that's why I I really loved Montesquieu. It covers so many different aspects in a lot of unique and interesting ways. Yeah, we got so many places to go on this episode. So to kind of kick off with a little bit of context, right? Montesquieu's writing during the reign of Louis XIV, the Sun King, during the era of absolutism in France. And Montesquieu is concerned by the centralization of power around the monarch. And the reason that Montesquieu is concerned about this is that it's eating away at the traditional role played by the French nobility and the French clergy, right? Previously, the French nobility and the French clergy served as kind of mediating powers that helped to communicate problems in the regions of France to the central administration and that helped to implement the king's policy. And as Louis centralizes more and more power around himself, these nobles are having to hang out in Paris. They're having to uh, hang on Louis's every word. They're competing with each other to determine who gets to dress him, who gets to put on his shoes, right? They're removed from the regions that they are standardly associated with. They're not in contact or uh, heavily involved with those communities. So they're not able to play that mediating role. The regions of France are getting neglected. Everything is focused around Paris. It's not working, right? So how does Montesquieu try to solve this problem? 
Well, what Montesquieu really wants, and the way that he wants to solve this problem, is by re-empowering the nobility and giving it a lot of the local regional um, executive powers that it previously had, um, but was obviously uh, decapitated from under Louis XIV's reign, and even before that a little bit. Um, and another way that he, that he sees this um, as working out is by specifically insulating the nobility from commercial society and from commerce in general. Um, because one thing that Montesquieu is really worried about is the um, corruption of the political system and of the state by commercial interest, by luxury, and by the vice that comes from that luxury. Specifically because um, at this time, um, a lot of theorists, a lot of political theorists in France are also looking towards England and looking towards the problems of wealthy, affluent merchants buying their way into the aristocratic class and thereby being able to essentially um, diffuse <laughs> a lot of their commercial interests into those areas. And so um, at this time, the legislative powers in England, the House of Lords, the House of Commons, are very susceptible to bribery, corruption. And it's very much seen as a system that doesn't work because commercial interests are really, really corrupting it and making it only have a direction toward that interest. So Montesquieu wants to separate commercial interests from the interests that the nobility have by essentially requiring that the nobility um, abstain from any form of commerce. Or if it's a wealthy merchant who is joining the aristocracy, they basically give up all their commercial activity and they purely focus on their political roles as nobles. So having re-empowered these nobles, having insulated them from commerce, these nobles will then compete with one another through an honor system. And this honor system is something that Montesquieu finds in the pure form of monarchical government. So to summarize real quickly, Montesquieu has three forms of pure government. Um, most political theorists in the ancient world um, go about talking about democracy, aristocracy, and monarchy. Montesquieu decides to talk about democracy, monarchy, and despotism, or to put it in an easier way to understand, rule by many, rule by one, and rule by a corrupted one. <laughs> if, if you could put it that way. Despotism is essentially a corrupted version uh, of the form of monarchy. But the important point about monarchy is that in monarchy, the nobles compete with each other for honor. What does that mean? They compete for each other for distinction, for status, for rank, um, through fulfilling political roles for the monarch, for which they are then rewarded um, if they fulfill them, if they achieve specific things um, or do things, they gain more offices or they gain more influence within the court. Um, and often these offices and these ranks and these titles and awards that they get also grant them more luxurious um, living or more affluent lifestyles, which essentially, and Moschew realizes this, is the same as if it were an affluent merchant who were being economically successful. So the idea is to tie these nobles to their political roles through an incentive system, whereby they do beneficial work that is in the interests of the monarch and the state, so that the state functions well, so that the regional powers are doing their job. And at the same time, they get rewarded for this work. And they don't have to then engage in commerce on the side because they're going to be gaining those benefits anyway through fulfilling these roles. Um, and that's kind of a quick summary of how uh, Montesquieu sees this solution. There is, of course, a few intricacies to that, but I'm, I'm sure we'll get into that further. Oh, yeah, we'll get into that. So, I mean, if you're American and you have taken some version of high school social studies, 
All you really learn about Montesquieu is that he had something to do with separation of powers, and that through separation of powers, you end up with the legislative, executive, and judicial branches of the U.S. Constitution. But here, what you're really hearing is a quite different version of separation of powers. It's really a, a separation of classes. It's giving the merchants and the nobles distinct and separate roles in the state, where the nobles are competing for honor. And through that competition for honor, they're acquiring power and they're acquiring luxuries, but they're not engaged in commercial activity. They're not engaged in money-making. And on the other hand, a set of bourgeois merchants who are focused entirely around commercial activity and money-making, but are prevented from holding political roles, right? And each of these two classes is supposed to benefit the state from Montesquieu. The commercial activity will enrich the state. And the nobles' activity will keep the state running well politically, right? But Montesquieu thinks if you try to combine both of those roles in one person, that the nobles, if they have commercial interests, will, instead of making decisions based on what's good for the state, make decisions based on what's good for their private commercial interests, right? And the same goes for the merchants. If they start to acquire political power, then they'll use that political power to extend their individual profit, right? Because the merchants think in terms of individual profit, they don't think in terms of the good of the commonwealth, they can't have political power for Montesquieu. So we, we typically think of money and power as things that go together in modern democracies where there's huge amounts of campaign finance stuff, where rich people are donating to campaigns, getting involved in the political system and the media in all sorts of ways. Montesquieu saw that as a, as a potentially very serious problem and wanted to separate the elite into two different phylums, right? This merchant phylum and this landed aristocrat phylum, right? Now, you, you also raise this point about different types of government, and you, you, you use the word democracy. I think Montesquieu usually uses the word republic, right? Yeah. Pure yeah, monarchies right. versus pure republics, mm -hmm. right? So in a pure republic, one of the ways in which it's different for, for Montesquieu is that a pure republic functions on virtue. So in a republic, because the citizens of the republic are committed to the state because they are committed to virtue in the sense that they're committed to putting the good of the whole ahead of their individual good, that they identify their individual good with the good of the whole, right? A republic, therefore, depends very much on the cultivation of a certain set of qualities in a person. Now, these qualities, these virtues are, in Montesquieu's view, very difficult to get in general because, as he argues in the Persian letters, to even begin to acquire the virtues, you have to have a self-awareness of the ways in which you are less than fully virtuous, of the things that you maybe don't know about the world, of the things that you are not conscious of in yourself. Right. So to even begin the process of self-reflection that would enable you to develop the virtues, you have to have a level of self-awareness, which Mont Montesquieu doesn't think most people have. Right. You add on top of that that there's all this commercial activity going on in modernity. You're no longer in a society where everything runs on slavery and, and wars of conquest, but increasingly you have a lot of uh, money being gained in commercial activity. And for Montesquieu, whereas war fighting is a kind of collective endeavor which causes people to who are leading armies or fighting in armies to identify with the state, merchant activity, commercial activity tends to lead people to think in terms of their own individual interests and therefore makes it more difficult for those people to acquire virtue. So 
in a society that's increasingly commercial, the virtues which were hard to get in the first instance become even harder to get. And so Montesquieu needs to come up with a way that you can have this merchant activity while still having functioning states. And so for this reason, he tends to lean toward monarchy because monarchy doesn't rely to anything like the same degree on his schema on the subjects having virtue. Instead, they can have honor where the king just sets up an incentive system and that incentive system causes people to do things that are in the state's interest because if they do those things, they'll be rewarded with titles and luxuries, right? So instead of submitting to the common good for its own sake or because you have the virtues that enable you to see the value of the common good, these nobles are submitting to the common good to get honor, to get prestige, to get luxuries, right? Yep, exactly. Um, and this may even sound like a compromise um, with commerce. Um, but the interesting thing about Montesquieu is he's not really defending the ancients. At first glance, it, it might be possible to think that he does prefer republics because of the civic virtue, because uh, of the equality and poverty. But that's actually not really the case. Um, I mean, firstly, not only because most theorists at this point are against slavery and therefore um, they don't want that kind of system in the first place. That already creates a tension that has to be somehow resolved. But secondly, because uh, in his work on the Romans, Montesquieu already lays out how republics, through their own conquest and war, eventually accrue luxuries and wealth to the degree that they then become decadent and collapse into um, despotism and essentially lose all the, all the liberty that they would have anyway. Um, and this is, of course, compounded by the fact that ancient pure republics um, well, such as the Roman Empire, for example, which could be debated whether it was a pure type or not. But either way, Montesquieu uses it as his main example. And the issue with that there is that there is not a distinct, there is not enough of a separation of powers to save the Republic from being corrupted by the luxury um, that is there. Of course, at the beginning, he mentions that, yes, you know, there's some laws which grant a, a some form of distribution of land, which, which does help to maintain a, a degree of equality. And there are some inheritance laws which do help to sort of contain wealth and not make it too um, concentrated in, in one sector of society. But those things gradually get eroded over time. And so Montesquieu ultimately views as all ancient republics and all ancient systems like monarchies doomed, which is why really um, the modern um, compromise with commercial interests with the insulated nobility is his solution. Um, but another interesting thing about this is that Montesquieu does distinguish between true honor and false honor. I mean, he specifically says that true honor is philosophically speaking, that which pursues the good or something similar to that. Um, and that false honor can still be useful to the state, but does not necessarily um, need to actually pursue the good, or at least that that's how it can be in interpreted. And I think that's really interesting because um, there's a distinction there between an almost sort of, I guess you could call it the like a platonic good, the form of the good of what the um, political nobles should be doing, um, and then what is actually beneficial to the state, which could not might not necessarily be the good, but it's still beneficial to the state in the sense that it helps it um, to go forward, or it's sort of like a raison d'etat thing. Um, what do you think about that, Ben? Yeah, what you get with Montesquieu is a system where nobody has to be a good person. Mm. Nobody has to be a good person. And I think that this is one of those questions that we get hung up on. Do, does a state, to function well, need a population that already possesses good qualities and good virtues? Because very often we get political theorists get stuck in this situation 
where the kind of state they want depends on a kind of person that they don't have, that the state that they want would produce, right? Mm -hmm. So if if you want a virtuous republic, but you have a bunch of people who have grown up in a decrepit political system, those people lack the qualities that are necessary for a functioning virtuous republic. So it's very difficult to get from a decrepit situation to a virtuous republic. And so political theorists who want to get to a virtuous system from a decrepit system often have to posit some kind of transcendental figure, a legislator, a lawgiver, a Lycurgus, some kind of immensely charismatic figure who's going to somehow rearrange the institutions in such a way that they will produce this better kind of person and this better kind of behavior. And they're somehow going to be able to do that, even though all of the people that they're currently working with are deeply flawed human beings, right? Mm. Uh, Montesquieu avoids that problem of how do you get to something good from from a, a bad population by coming up with a system which doesn't require the population to be good at all, right? But the interesting thing about it is it is a deeply monarchist system. It's very monarchist. And I think a lot of people who associate Montesquieu with influences on the American Revolution think that Montesquieu must be some kind of conventional, freedom-loving, late 18th century figure. He's not. He's an early 18th century figure who's mainly focused on getting the monarchy in France to not be despotic, but to be monarchical instead. And he's mainly focused on a kind of um, mixed monarchy, right, which has got these other classes involved in defined roles. So you have a king, you have nobles, you have merchants, and each knows their place, and each respects the terrain of the others, right? Yeah. And that's being contrasted with despotism. So you don't get, say, republic and then some kind of bad version of republic. You just get republics, monarchies, and despotisms. So the main bad type of state is the despotism. The argument concerning republics is that they lead to despotism anyway, Mm -hmm. And so then the goal is, how do you have a monarchy that isn't despotic? How do you distinguish between the good monarchy and the bad despotism? And what kinds of institutions and structures do you need to get the good monarchy? Now, I think this is something that bothers a lot of contemporary readers and students. A lot of students don't like a theory which starts from the premise that the right kind of monarchy is the best kind of system. And I think that, you know, understandably, it violates a lot of present presentist thinking. But it's it's interesting because part of how we get where we end up getting in the 18th century is by going through this period where people try to save monarchy. They try to find a way to make it work and prevent it from decaying into some kind of, absol- of absolutism. And of course, Montesquieu's solution doesn't work, right? Montesquieu's solution is as elegant as it is in divesting the state of needing to rely on virtuous people doesn't, in the end, save monarchy. Why, Andrew? Why do you think Montesquieu's system, in the end, isn't able to work? Why is, why is he unable to get this kind of system to be created and practiced? Well, I, I guess because, really, he needs to set up that separation of powers to have, that, to have them compete for political power. I mean, that, that's where the American um, competition of power comes from. And that's never really possible in France because he wants to re-empower the nobles. He wants the, um, it's also worthy to mention the local parlement who 
have a sort of judicial function in their local regions. He wants those to take over more of a judicial function. And he wants the, the, the parlement and the nobles to balance the king. And of course, the merchant, the mercantile interest to be separate. And none of that is ever really achieved. Um, I mean, it's, it certainly influences theorists down the line. Um, but it's never really fully tried, I guess, in the same way that, for example, French revolutionaries um, try to implement other political theorists more fervently. Um, Montesquieu certainly doesn't really come as close to being implemented in the way that he perhaps would have wanted. Although, of course, ironically, um, it can be said that the American constitution is very Montesquieuian in terms of separation of powers. So many of his um, ideas, and I, I guess analysis in some way does influence history, but not in the way that he expected. And maybe that is because you said like there is, there always is around this period and uh, certainly growing in these decades um, around the time that he's writing. And of course, in the century, a sort of aversion um, to monarchy. Um, but the interesting thing is that Montesquieu never talks about, um, never really emphasizes monarchy in the sense of decadence and royalty and all these things. He's actually against those things. He sees these things as warning signs of despotism. So perhaps Montesquieu would be content with a more presidential figure. Of course, he doesn't, um, he doesn't really want it to be an elected figure and he wants it to have the position for life. And he never really goes into those things too much. So it's possible to speculate about what he could have thought. Um, but the, the, the reason- And there were arguments from certain American mm. revolutionary figures like John Adams or Alexander Hamilton to make the president more like a Montesquieu yeah, monarch. Exactly, exactly. So it, it does have some influence there. It just doesn't come to fruition, of course, in the way that he may, may have wanted. Um, but yeah, ultimately, it's just the fact that the moderate mixed government um, system that he wants to set up with a competition of political powers just never really occurs. Um, and you could blame that on commerce. I mean, one other reason why why commerce is uh, it has to be done to such a degree um, during the modern period. Another reason that Montesquieu argues in reflections on universal monarchy, where he's talking about how uh, Louis XIV is not going to succeed in uniting Europe through um, essentially uniting the Spanish and French crown during the War of Spanish Succession, and then also potentially weakening um, for other states in Europe. And he mentions that one of the reasons is that warfare um, is becoming less and less attractive because mo more states have standing armies, they have similar technologies, communication travels very fast. Um, you also can't really pillage that much when you conquer a territory. You sort of have to maintain it and look after it. Those are the expectations. There's different norms than in ancient times. Whereas in ancient times, a state like Rome, which was hugely um, militarily and technologically superior to other states, could just sweep across um, other tribes and, and nations and just decimate them. That's no longer really possible in Europe because everyone is on a lot more equal footing. Of course, there are still some inequalities, but more or less, it's much more difficult to fight wars. It's much more expensive to fight wars. It's much more painful to fight wars. Um, and so because of that, commerce is even more um, needed um, for economic growth because that's ultimately how states have to grow. Um, so yeah, but at the same time, on the other hand, keeping the nobles um, away from warfare. Whereas, of course, in the ancient world, if it was a pure monarchy, the nobles would be taking up a very large role in warfare. And so it could be argued that um, the nobility in the ancient world would have been more likely <laughs> to become decadent faster 
um, through continuous conquest. Whereas in the modern moderate government that Montesquieu proposes, with them already separate from the commercial interests and not participating in warfare because there's an aversion to it in modern times, um, there's a hope, I guess, for him that the, the nobles will be even more dedicated to their political functions. Um, but that's just his theory. Uh, it doesn't actually come to fruition like you mentioned. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the big trouble here is this thought that I think the most utopian piece of Montesquieu's theory is this thought that you can separate wealth from power. Yeah. And of course, when he's describing ancient societies, he of course readily recognizes that it's the nobles who are doing the war fighting. The war fighting is what is enriching the state. The war fighting is what is delivering slaves to the state. Those slaves are working on latifundia. They're working on the nobles' estates. So there isn't in the Roman Republic some kind of neat separation mm -hmm. of the people who have the money from the people who exercise political power. And Montesquieu makes the argument that this gradually over time results in the corruption of the Roman elite and the Roman elite's loss of civic virtue, right? Yep. Simil but, but here in the modern period, there's an assumption that you can keep the merchants out of politics. And so you can somehow enrich the state through this commercial activity without those merchants taking on a political role, that you could somehow draw up this wall between the part of the state that makes the money and the part of the state that runs the foreign policy and does the administration. Mm -hmm. and, and this difficulty of what do we do with these merchants, I, I think this is the the beginning of a huge and long debate that we're still dealing with today in debates about capitalism and oligarchs and plutocrats. What do we do with these merchants? And Max Weber, much later on, makes the argument that the bourgeoisie lacks maturity, that it is unable to put the interests of the state ahead of its own interest. And therefore, it's not able to subordinate its values and its individual drive for profit to the needs of the state, and therefore lacks the maturity to be an elite which runs a state, right? Of course, it's easier for uh, you know, on Montesquieu's view for an ancient aristocrat to identify with the state because the way the ancient aristocrat gets rich is by holding land and the way that you get land is by the state being powerful and conquering it. So there's a much neater connection between public interest and private uh, individual interest in the ancient world than there is in modernity. This this problem of how do you get people who make their money by thinking in a self-interested way, by pursuing their individual gain, by not thinking in terms of what's good for collectives, but thinking in terms of only what's profitable and only what is competitive in a market system. How do you get those people to responsibly hold a political role? The answer seems to be overwhelmingly that you can't, that these people always in politics are irresponsible, are too self-interested, and will take action which ultimately undermines the collective so that they can, in the interim, get rich. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And perhaps that is even then sort of a prophecy for the day. I mean, if Montesquieu sees that as one of the main reasons, or I guess luxury and wealth is one of the main reasons, which a lot of other theorists also see as the reason for the decline of Rome, for the decline of ancient Greek republics as well, um, perhaps that's also why not only uh, Montesquieu's moderate government is so difficult, if not impossible, to actually achieve um, for him during this period, not to even mention during our time, um, but for all other governments to be temporal in nature and declining um, in any case. Yeah. Yeah. Now, of course, you do have some theorists who try to make the argument that these merchants can be somehow brought on politically. 
you know, like Adam Ferguson later on will argue that, uh, you know, these, these merchants to some degree could be embedded in civil society structures, right? Uh, and to Tocqueville, you get, you get some of these arguments that if you have a robust network of civil society organizations that cause these businessmen to, in their private lives, reflect on the good of the communities that they're part of, that that could in some way embed them in the public interest. That therefore luxury in and of itself is not inherently corrupting, but only corrupting when it becomes divorced from a public role, which appropriately orients the uh, elite toward the public interest, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. From a Marxist perspective, all of this looks like a bit silly. It, it just looks a bit silly, this thought that you're going to be able to, by getting people involved in churches or charity organizations or their local uh, volunteer groups, uh, cause them to behave in a pro-social way. Uh, all of it looks a little bit silly. You're going to just get them to be philanthropists. Uh, I've never really bought the, the civil society organizations as a means of disciplining the bourgeoisie argument, in part because at every stage of the last 200 years of political thought, You've had political theorists going, the bourgeoisie are immature, the bourgeoisie aren't doing what they need to do to effectively run the state. Uh, th these questions about how you would get the bourgeoisie to appropriately organize their values in a way which mimics ancient aristocrats, it never seems to go anywhere. It never seems to produce any kind of sustained improvement in behavior. Although you have a lot of theories which are predicated, Adam Smith's theory is to a significant degree predicated on your ability to get people to do this. Um, but I think one, one area where Adam Smith and Adam Ferguson disagree is that for Adam Ferguson, you need social roles and, and you need to politically set up those social roles. Uh, and it's important to make sure that these uh, rich people are embedded in social roles, and that is an institutional question. Whereas for Adam Smith, there's kind of a, a premise that this is something that will just be done in the private sphere, that these people will be on their own sufficiently interested in um, trying to lead good or ethical lives that they will, on their own, seek out some level of virtue. Adam Smith also greatly revises the conception of virtue to make it something that is more attainable for the bourgeoisie and, and also therefore differentiates it heavily from what it looked like in the ancient world and for ancient theorists. A Adam Smith's virtue is to do with getting people to have the sentiments which a third, uh, an, a disinterested third party would have. And so if you uh, lack th those sentiments to try to have them, and if you have too much sentiment to try to reduce down to the level that the disinterested third party would have. So it's mainly focused around the regulation of passion rather than on civic duty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you brought up Persian letters earlier to, to mention how through, through that novel, um, as most French political theorists who have a novel, Montesquieu's is Persian letters. And of course, they are, many of the characters lack self-awareness. And another interesting thing about Personal letters, which directly relates to what you were just talking about in terms of regulating commerce, figuring out what, what to possibly do with its effects, uh, is the tale of the troglodytes, um, where essentially Montesquieu kind of sets out um, almost like a state of nature where he depicts an egalitarian agricultural tribal community 
um, which at first has no luxury, no wealth. It's just living by itself, completely self-sustaining. Um, it's got civic virtue. They're all working together. And then gradually, um, as um, they get larger crop yields, um, as they're more, as, as the population grows, um, luxury begins to be accrued. And eventually, the material desires of the people are awoken to such an extent that Montesquieu writes that they decide to, instead of ruling in a, in a community, so to speak, um, they decide to elect one of their oldest and wisest um, people to essentially be a king, to maintain the virtue of the society as a whole, but so that the individual um, citizens, I guess you could say, um, can focus on their own um, private lives and can enjoy the luxuries um, that they are essentially accruing. Um, and what's interesting about this is that Montesquieu never publishes the continuation of the story, but in the unpublished version that was found in his manuscripts, um, he writes about how this king then implements sumptuary laws to basically try to really stamp out and lower the levels of luxury in the society, um, which is commenting, of course, on Fenelon's um, recommendations for Salentum, um, which you guys discussed a few episodes ago, I believe, um, probably was a long time ago, um, which is a direct comment on the luxury debate. And the interesting part about that is Montesquieu writes that although this is partially successful in limiting luxury, it ultimately makes all of the people really, really unhappy because their material desires have already been awoken. They've already tasted luxury. They've already enjoyed it. And so repressing that to such a degree to attempt to maintain some sort of virtue through uh, one figure is just really, really sad for all of society. Um, and I guess that's why um, he doesn't recommend that solution um, in the spirit of the laws, but instead tries to go with his moderate mixed government one. Um, but yeah, an interesting comment on, on Fenelon. And of course, yeah, like you said, Ferguson ties in quite neatly to that as well. I think Ferguson directly borrows um, Montesquieu's honor system, but essentially just uses it um, for his arist aristocracy argument. Mm, yeah. So Edmund, you've been listening to this for a while. What have you been thinking about? Yeah. Well, I think the first thing that um, I wanted to pick up on was the um, argument you were noting earlier that Montesquieu is trying to uh, find a way of balancing the private bourgeoisie with the public aristocracy um, by separating them, by uh, separating wealth and power, um, keeping keeping the moneyed interests in their place, and keeping the aristocrats in, in in their place, and never never the twain shall meet. And I think um, Montesquieu's own argument seems to make this uh, separation quite problematic. Um, he says at one point that um, quote, "Moreover, the great enterprises of the traders are always necessarily mixed with public business." But public business is for the most part uh, as suspect to the merchants and monarchies as it appears safe to them in republican states. Therefore, great commercial enterprises are not for monarchies, but for the government by many. And I guess perhaps this answers the question in a way. Montesquieu is trying to get around the uh, problem of separating wealth and power by saying, well, in, in a monarchy, you've not got to uh, worry too much. Um, about um, a kind of economic commerce that, that you get in Republican states. But he also says that you get quite a lot of um, 
commerce of luxury in monarchies. And perhaps that's why he's insisting on the separation. He's trying to keep the luxuries at bay, stop those luxuries from influencing um, people who hold political office. Um, and I think, you know, in, in that sense, Montesquieu kind of tries to uh, keep the problem at bay. But I think the, the problem really uh, comes, to, uh, comes to bite him when he starts to um, talk about the, um, his intention not just to balance um, public politics and private economics, but also to find some kind of balance between debtors and creditors. He says, quote, there must be a proportion between the state as creditor and the state as debtor. And the indebted part must never have the slightest advantage over the crediting part. And I think that um, the uh, French Revolution, as described by Edmund Burke, uh, really um, makes this uh, idea uh, quite problematic because the idea of trying to um, balance creditors and debtors while maintaining the separation between them, uh, in France's case, between the indebted monarchy and the uh, creditor um, money class, um, led to quite a lot of problems. And Burke says, quote, By the vast debt of France, a great moneyed interest had insensibly grown up, and with it a great power. By the ancient usages which prevailed in that kingdom, the general circulation of property and in particular the mutual convertibility of land into money, and of money into land, had always been a matter of difficulty. Family settlements, rather more general and more strict than they are in England, the jus retractus, the great mass of landed property held by the crown, and by a maxim of the French law, held unalienably the vast estates of the ecclesiastic corporations, all these had kept the landed and moneyed interests more separated in France, less miscible, and the owners of the two distinct species of property not so well disposed to each other as they are in this country, namely Britain. And so I think there's a sense in which mon- the you know, history, not only uh, in the American case, but I think also in the French case, showed that uh, Montesquieu's strategy of maintaining um, honourable monarchy by way of a, a set of... Um, in a way, public-private divisions uh, was not a tenable way of maintaining uh, maintaining the system that Montesquieu wanted to maintain. Um, but at the same time, these public-private divisions seem to last to this day, um, albeit in lots of different forms. And um, you were noting uh, earlier, Benjamin, about the way in which. Um, uh, Weber commented on the immaturity of the of the bourgeoisie, and of course, around about this time, as um, as Hannah Arendt was writing in uh, in 1951, at the turn of the at the turn of the century, late 19th, early 20th century, uh, Arendt writes that the bourgeoisie turned to politics um, as it exhausted its uh, capacity for private um, accumulation. And so not only pursued imperialism abroad to expand the boundaries of capital accumulation, but also uh, used politics as a way of trying to uh, leveraging uh, the power of the state 
in order to better serve uh, private interests. And uh, this for Arendt is one of the uh, key causes behind totalitarianism, because once the bourgeoisie is taken over the state, the state no longer acts in the interests of everyone. It's, uh, I think, in a way, a what I might call a private state. It's a state that has ceased to serve public interests, and therefore, either for some kind of uh, ancient virtuous um, goal or for Montesquieu's idea of honour, the state will not fight for collective honour or collective virtue. It will be ensnared by uh, private profit. And that is the key towards um, losing uh, totality in the state. And ironically, uh, in this sense, as Neumann argued in uh, the early 40s about Nazi Germany in his work Behemoth, uh, the totalitarian state, instead of being some kind of uh, a coherent whole, had become an anarchic competition among the army, bureaucracy, uh, party and industry. Um, instead of uh, getting a perfectly unified state, the totalitarian state uh, ironically reflects a loss of totality and a loss of unity. And the appearance of unity masks the reality of deep divisions. Um, and I think that there is uh, something, in a way, uh, fundamentally Montesquieu about this, because Montesquieu describes a state that is divided between the political and the economic. And I think this division is, uh, as, uh, as you've both noted, uh, something that is kind of alien to ancient states, at least to um, ancient Greek states and perhaps to, uh, to some degree to ancient Rome too. Um, the separation between public and private spheres is quite a modern idea. Um, and as um, Ernst Frenkel argued in the dual state, uh, the totalitarian state was split between, on the one hand, a kind of economically oriented normative state, where you had a set of laws governing profits, and then a more politically oriented prerogative state, which made arbitrary decisions about uh, about what the state should be doing, uh, using the coercive power of the state to uh, ensure that, well, in a way, in part, Frankel argues, to ensure that the normative state is protected um, and to ensure uh, that, that that profits are maintained, though arguably there was mo much more than that going on. Um, and I think that there was a degree to which, um, though we still see the separation between public and private spheres today, it's quite clear that this is quite unstable and harder to uh, hard to maintain stability than Montesquieu supposes. Uh, Montesquieu seems to have a very clear idea of what can maintain political stability. But in a way, I think his notion of division being the best recipe of, of stability, of institutionalized divisions, as Nancy Fraser puts it, um, between uh, the political and the economic, between wealth and power, um, being the key to stability. Uh, I, I think quite the opposite, in a way, these institutionalized divisions between uh, public politics and private economics is a, is a recipe for instability and conflict. Yeah, I think that's a really excellent point. Uh, and to start from the debtor example, 
when you have a part of the state which is interested in foreign policy in strengthening the state relative to its rivals, in fighting wars occasionally to accomplish that purpose, that part of the state will borrow any amount of money to accomplish the foreign policy objectives, which it views as tied to the survival of the state. And you see this still in the way that, for instance, uh, the American Defense Department thinks about its budget. It wants all the money that it can possibly get so that it can compete with China, and it doesn't care how much money that costs or what kind of financial burden that places on the government. Conversely, the merchant part of the state, which is the part which is lending the money, right? the, the rich people who lend the money, which is then used to pay for all of that, uh, those people are not really particularly interested in foreign policy concerns at all and just want to be able to get access to as many markets as possible so that they can become as rich as possible. And they don't pay attention to rising foreign policy threats. They don't pay attention to, say, a rising China at all. They don't care that China is rising relative to the United States in wealth and power. It doesn't really matter to uh, global capitalist class. So you have on the one side a bunch of, of national security people who are fixated on national security don't understand the economy and would badly mismanage the economy in favor of having a stronger military and uh, economically oriented people who would make themselves as rich as possible, even if it means the ruin of the state. And so the separation of these two elites results in an elite which is obsessed with economics to the exclusion of everything else and an elite which is obsessed with foreign policy to the exclusion of everything else and uh, never the, the twain shall meet. And I think that uh, you, you rightly make the point that this has been kind of a continuing problem with modernity that we don't see in the ancient world insofar as in the ancient world, wealth and power are tied to land and to your ability to increase population by having enough uh, food surplus to support population growth. So your military power is based on how many people you've got and Therefore, on how much food you can produce, on how much land you have. And, and you see in the 18th century still the French physiocrats making this kind of argument that the strength of the state is ultimately grounded on land and therefore the acquiring of land is the most important thing and making sure that you have a food surplus is the most important thing. This kind of old school way of thinking about a state's wealth and power as all neatly sewn together around the idea of land and territory and therefore war is about increasing land, which is about increasing food, which is about increasing soldiers, which is about fighting war, which is about increasing land, and so on, in a loop where the same elites can specialize in all of the all of the aspects of this at once. The same elite who manages a plot of land is also the elite who goes and, and gets on his horse and, and fights wars to defend that land or to claim more land. That neat little schema that ancient states run on just doesn't fit in a society where you have enormous amounts of commerce that is quite disconnected from the affairs of territorial states, which is increasingly global, which is increasingly mobile, which is increasingly uninterested in the fates of particular states, particular territories, particular communities. It's difficult mm. to imagine how you would how you would put that back together. And to a large degree on, on this show, we, we think about how would you make some kind of connection between these things that have been so estranged from one another? Yeah. Talking about ways of um, ways of fixing things, um, when you were describing the Persian letters, Andrew, I was um, I was reminded of um, Plato's depiction in the Republic of the transition from the first city, uh, which Glaucon 
calls the city of pigs uh, because of its uh, absence of luxuries. Uh, mm-hmm. The transition from that city to uh, Plato's uh, realistic utopia, Callipolis, um, or nominally realistic utopia, um, because um, I guess that Plato, like Montesquieu, wants there to be some kind of like Sergan figure who can maintain um, order in the society. Well, there is some level, some level of um, trade, though, and indeed luxury, um, because it is, you know, because the first city doesn't have luxury, that um, Plato is, uh, uh, that, so- that Socrates in the dialogue is forced to concede to Glaucon the need to have a city that does have luxuries. Um, yeah. Though the thing is that, I guess, in, in Callippus, you have this class division between the trade-oriented producers, the war-oriented auxiliaries or soldiers, and then the kind of governing uh, class of guardians uh, informed by philosophy who um, balance between these different classes and are trained in the art of war with the auxiliaries and so have this, um, you know, this public bias because it is the public unity that they have to um have to maintain uh, i guess there is in a way something uh, uh something Mon- montesquieu about that um of course <laughs> unlike montesquieu that plato is not trying to uh rigorously separate the public and the private in that kind of way he doesn't see the the part and the whole as really all that different um because he is using um the uh, discussion of justice in the city um in part to explain what it means uh, to have a just soul and he views the just soul as also composed of these three elements, the philosophical, uh, the more appetitive economic element, and the honor-led uh, um, political element with a kind of philosophy or, or kind of more military element with f- philosophy uh, performing the role of political balance um, on, on top of these things. Um, and so I, I, I guess I think that in a way, I think Montesquieu falls into a, a similar trap that Plato describes Callipolis falling into, um, because Callipolis succumbs in a way uh, to uh, a kind of class conflict uh, that stems initially from mistakes that the Guardians uh, make, but uh, culminates in this conflict um, between different uh, kind of different elements of the producer class. Um, between the more oligarchical element and the more democratic element. Um, and I think, similarly, there's a sense in which Montesquieu is trying to resist this um, because Montesquieu wants to say that trade uh, brings about peace. He says the natural effect of trade is to bring about peace. Two nations which trade together render themselves reciprocally dependent. For if one has an interest in buying, the other has an interest in selling. Uh, and all unions are based upon mutual needs. And Montesquieu also says uh, that, uh, kind of paradoxically, when he's uh, uh, trying to reject the argument for debasing the coinage, uh, that trade is in its own nature extremely uncertain and is, is a great evil to add a new uncertainty to that which is founded on the nature of the thing. 
Given that uncertainty is often taken to be a cause of conflict among states, I think this is quite a uh, paradoxical given Montesquieu's insistence on the peaceful effects of trade. Um, and he, um, he furthermore argues, quote, that one commerce leads to another, the small to the, to the middling, the middling to the great, and he who earlier desired to gain little arrives at a position where he has no less than a desire to gain a great deal. And so the notion that um, that commerce can be contained and prevented from uh, in- infiltrating politics or any other sphere uh, seems quite hard, given this kind of tendency of commerce to inflate over time. Um, but the central point, I think, here is that if Montesquieu is trying to uh, argue that trade ha- helps maintain stability and peace, I think in a way Plato recognises that uh, trade and luxury leads to the decay of the state. The, the concession that Socrates makes to Glaucon in having luxury in, in Callipolis is one of the things that leads Callipolis to fall. Um, and Plato recognises this. He recognises that his state will not last forever uh, and that trade and luxury will be part of that story. Whereas Montesquieu kind of wants to have it both ways. He wants to acknowledge that trade is unstable and uncertain. But he also thinks that the mutual dependency which creates, uh, which trade creates, will lead to peace. And I think that in the end, this contradiction, I think, uh, can be resolved. One interesting way it's been resolved is that there was a an article not too long ago, um, uh, published by um, uh, Martin Mayer and Thornig, two thousand eight, uh, make trade not war, uh, which argued that. Uh, countries more open to global trade have a higher probability of war because multilateral trade openness decreases bilateral dependence to any given country and the cost of our bilateral conflict. It seems that the basic argument of this article is that while bilateral trade is quite peaceful, uh, multilateral trade can lead to war. And I think, ironically, the mechanism for this is provided by Montesquieu, which is that trade is highly uncertain. It relies on rapidly changing prices and therefore um, rapidly changing power. And I think the reason why Montesquieu does not recognise this, does not recognise the way in which trade, through changing prices, changes power uh, and leads to a kind of imbalance of power that leads to war, is that Montesquieu is ignoring and indeed repressing the idea that changes in prices lead to changes in power because he separated wealth and power. And uh, yeah, as a, so as a result of uh, Montesquieu's uh, uh, embrace of, uh, of institutional division, I think Montesquieu fails to notice the ways in which trade, uh, while seeming to lead to at least some kind of mutual benefit in the beginning, in the end, through uh, producing a great deal of uncertainty and creative destruction, as Schumpeter puts it, leads to changes to the balance of power, and therefore, ultimately, rather than peace, uh, trade uh, can quite often lead to war. Mm. Yeah, I think I think you make an interesting point there. There is, of course, a, a number of theorists who try to make this argument that trade prevents war. Benjamin Constant is another prominent example who comes a bit later after Montesquieu. Uh, this this argument that trade avoids war, I think as you say, elides the degree to which when 
power is connected to industrial output, and this is the thing that I think Montesquieu really can't anticipate because he comes before industrialization, we reach a point where the power of a state is very much connected to its economic output, very straightforwardly, whereas the physiocrats can can say, well, you have all these luxuries, but these luxuries have nothing to do with supporting a larger population, which can then go out and fight in war, right? Uh, Once luxuries are not just frivolous, but eventually lead to mechanized armies with planes and tanks and and machine guns and huge amounts of ammunition and things like that, then the industrial capacity of a state becomes connected to its ability to warfight. And so as uh, trade becomes more connected to your ability to field a military, uh, and the military becomes more disconnected from agrarianism. Trade can very quickly cause a state to become rich and powerful that previously wasn't rich and powerful. Mm. And that can lead that state to try to revise the balance of power. Mm. And similarly, internally, trade can cause particular classes to very quickly. You know, I think Montesquieu is seeing the change in the classes, that the merchant class is becoming very active and very powerful very quickly and destabilizing internal equilibrium, but also as states industrialize, certain states will be put in position through trade to destabilize the international equilibrium. And those changes will occur very quickly. The amount of time that states will have to respond to those changes will be limited. If the state if the state's elite are too busy getting rich off the trading relationship with that rising power, they won't intervene in time to prevent the rise. By the time they're ready to intervene, it will be too late, and that rising power will then be able to uh, use its its new power and authority to damage the economic position of the power that was originally in charge. And I think we see that a lot with in terms of how Britain poorly manages the 19th century, how Britain is unable ultimately to deal with the rise of Germany, to deal with the rise of the United States, in part because it, it trades so much with these states. The trade with these states uh, eventually results in these states getting, getting rich uh, as they use a different series of protectionist measures to Um, get their nascent industry off the ground in the 19th century. Uh, They develop very, very rapidly. They industrialize very quickly. And and Britain is just caught off guard and unable to manage the rapidity of those changes. Uh, So I think you you make a good point that oftentimes trade is disruptive both to the internal class composition within a state and to the foreign policy position. And, And with regard to the internal class composition, I think when trade changes the internal class composition, you very often will will reach a point where the state will become will start to have governability issues or start to have trouble uh, just just exercising state capacity because the state becomes divided against itself. Mm. I think we're seeing a certain amount of that with the United States where there is a kind of split in uh, capital interests between the transnational, very, very global, very mobile rich. And the set of economic elites in the United States, which are still tied to territory, people who are tied to particular industries that are still in the United States or to retailers or to uh, restaurants, food service that that operate in the United States with fixed customer bases in the United States and transnational businesses, which do some business in the United States, sell some goods in the United States, but also sell goods all over the world and make things all over the world. Uh, These people tend to have very different 
stakes in the fate of the United States, very different views about what role the United States should play in the global economy, stemming from their own divergent interests. And I think more and more in the United States, that's been the debate rather than a debate between workers and, and the rich. It's been a debate between different kinds of rich people who have different levels of ties to the territory of the United States and uh, therefore different amounts to gain from different levels of, of U.S. engagement in the world and different types of U.S. engagement in the world. Uh, these elites are, are definitely fighting with each other. That fighting is often taking on a kind of cultural angle where the, the more territorially fixed elites are also more culturally conservative uh, and the more global elites are, are more culturally progressive. And so uh, oftentimes it's getting negotiated through culture war issues. But I think that a lot of what is going on is, uh, is, is division within elites brought on by m rapid changes to the internal composition of the U.S. elite driven by globalization. Mm. Uh, and then, of course, you know, that that those rapid changes are also enriching China very quickly and changing the balance of power globally. So all of that is is highly destabilizing, and and I think it's not at all obvious that the economic benefits of that will prevent war from breaking out. Uh, if war is prevented from breaking out, it will probably have something to do with the fact that both the United States and China have nuclear weapons and are very terrified of each other. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Though, of course, as we um, saw in the Cold War, it is altogether possible um, for great powers with nuclear weapons to fight if, you know, admittedly then through proxy wars. Um, though I, I think the possibility uh, sadly can't be of conflict, sadly can't be ruled out because um, there's this uh, um, concept in Chinese political science. Uh, that there is a stability-instability complex with nuclear weapons, that you might have stability at the nuclear level, but a possibility for low-level conflict you know, that's, that doesn't reach that level. And I think until states with nuclear weapons fight those kinds of low-level conflicts with more frequency, it'll be hard to say whether the bilateral presence of nuclear weapons prevents prevents war from breaking out. And I think it's worth noting that even if war does not break out, that the uh, rapid change to the uh, balance of power is, I think, already causing a great deal of instability. And that instability could lead to a lot of, a lot of domestic um, conflict within the countries concerned, even if uh, this does not turn into some kind of full-blown international conflagration. And that domestic instability um, uh, may be quite, uh, you know, uh, quite bad for a lot of people. Um, and so I think, it, in the end, Montesquieu's idea of trade being this recipe of peace and stability, I think we're seeing how that's not quite the case if you've got changes both to the balance of power among states and changes to the balance of power among classes. Uh, wrought by the dynamic uh, effects of um, of economic integration. Yeah, I think that's right, and and it's sad, you know, because the 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 theories that proposed trade as a solution were theories that were trying to bring an end to war, trying to bring an end to slavery. Saw these things about the ancient world as uh, deeply repulsive uh, for good, sound moral reasons, and yet the replacement system for that system 
has problems of its own and has rapidly developed the technology of war to an enormous level uh, you know i think about you know a lot of i think a lot of americans don't really know why the united states didn't win the vietnam war the reason the united states did not win the vietnam war is that the united states was unwilling to invade north vietnam and destroy the north vietnamese government and the reason the united states was unwilling to do that is during the korean war when the united states came into north korea China responded by entering the war mm. and pushing the United States back below the parallel. Yeah. And similarly, the United States was very concerned about going into North Vietnam because of the possibility that China would enter that war and that things would then escalate to the nuclear level. Mm. And so I think, I think we are likely to see nuclear weapons cause the United States and China to be cautious around each other. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that's going to mean that there's going to be peace, love, and dope. Uh, I think that probably there will be a lot of tensions over territories in the vicinity of China, over Taiwan, over the islands in the South China Sea. Uh, and a lot of that is, is driven by globalization, right? So instead of globalization making uh, for stability and, and an end of history, as, as people in the 90s like to imagine, I think that instead what it's done is it has destabilized the international system, which um, had previously brought about the level of stability that we had in the second half of the 20th century, both, both internally and in foreign policy and foreign policy by rapidly developing China and internally by creating deep, deep divisions and conflicts within the United States that make the United States less and less able to function and to do even even the basic things that would be expected of it. Yeah, I guess domestically, it's a widening of gap among the gap among uh, the the wealth of the classes, whereas internationally, it's a narrowing of the gap um, of power between uh, be between the most powerful states. Um, I think that reflects uh, some degree of the sense in which domestically it helps to have um a balance of power among uh, uh, among the classes um to to maintain stability but internationally it helps to have one state that is able to um to maintain the peace uh, through its um, through its hegemony of course you do have balance of power systems that uh, Europeans tried to put in place in the 18th and then in the 19th centuries um but even these systems uh, involved some kind of um, some kind of hegemonic power, particularly in economic terms, with uh, Britain in the nineteenth century. Um, and one of the reasons why um, uh, why both of the world wars broke out was um, challenges to this hegemony, first by Germany uh, with World War One, and then with Germany in World War Two, partly as a result of the fact. As Charles Kindleberger argued in *The World in Depression*, that it was the uh, the inability of Britain in uh, in the Great Depression and the uh, the uh, lack of um, willingness from the United States to do something to provide the kind of countercyclical lending and spending that you need in crises that uh, that that made the depression uh, so deep and that contributed to the uh, to the subsequent conflict. Um, and Kindleberger's suggestion is that it does help 
um, economically. And I think history suggests that it can also help geopolitically if, if there is a power um, to, if you like, substitute for the role that, uh, that some kind of, um, uh, perhaps this <laughs> brings Montesquieu back in, world government might play. Um, and because we don't live in a world state, there is no world government. Uh, there is no, as John Mersheimer puts it, night watchman to keep states safe at night. Instead, they uh, have to turn to a substitute for that, a kind of hegemonic state, uh, which uh, quite recently has been the United States. And as that hegemony erodes, um, there seems to be a greater tendency um, uh, towards conflict. And I think, uh, ironically, both the uh, uh, the uh, unevening of class power and the evening of state power stem from trade. We can see this with China. China's rise is as a result of its integration to the world trade system uh, since its acceptance into the WTO in 2001. And similarly, domestically, trade, um, actually as Montesquieu notes, um, is connected to a, a inequality of um, economic fortunes and that widening uh, wealth inequality. Um, together with the weakening uh, of the uh, kind of relative power of the hegemon internationally, are both keys to conflict and both products of trade. Yeah, trade and war. You, know, you get away from the one and you end up with the other. and It's a cycle. There seems to be a cycle. Yeah. It seems to be a cycle. Um, yeah. Yeah, and of course, talking about hegemony, I mean, one of the reasons that um, the Spanish War of Succession happens is because Louis XIV is trying to establish that hegemony um, in modern yeah. medieval Europe. Well, not really medieval anymore, but 18th century Europe. Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting how many theorists really do really want sort of an equilibrium of military power. But of course, like you mentioned, Edmund, ultimately, there is an economic hegemon um, either way. And that's also what the, the physiocrats are trying to achieve with economic hegemony. So even though um, there's potential hope that Montesquieu sees in um, warfare being less attractive and commerce being more attractive, and um, that helping to level and, and keep those states balanced in Europe, uh, of course, that one sort of peace and war perhaps leads to more conflict and trade, which then only rebounds into more war, <laughs> ironically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the thing about hegemons is that nobody likes them. So whenever you have one, all of the other states in the system want to see the hegemon ruined yeah. because the hegemon invariably, while it does keep the peace, it makes de decisions that disadvantage them and that exploit and, and expropriate them. So the weaker states always resent the hegemon and are always trying to get out from under it. Uh, even though the hegemon delivers peace and stability, it's a kind of peace that those states don't welcome because it's not sufficiently to their advantage. Uh, and then conversely, hegemony enables the hegemon to uh, get fat and happy and obsessed with its own internal affairs uh, or obsessed with petty affairs abroad that aren't really germane to its maintaining its position, becomes undisciplined by the lack of any competition and uh, begins to behave in a, in a less and less responsible way, which only kicks up more and more opposition from foreign states to that hegemon and its behavior. I think that's what we've seen with the United States over the last 30 years. After the fall of the Soviet Union, the United States has gotten fat and happy, behaved in a less responsible way, 
aggravated and alienated a lot of the weaker states around the world. Those states have sought to revise the system to carve out more power and more authority for themselves within it. And the result is an America that is internally divided, increasingly incompetent, and a set of other states around the world that are looking to uh, to be revisionist in in the distribution of power globally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting how yeah, that interesting. keeps repeating itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How we can just start from Montesquieu and get from that to all of that. <laughs> there we go. And that's why that's why Montesquieu is the first. Well, not quite the first. David Hume comes before him, but the first French theorist on that paper. The first French modern theorist. Uh, according to the history of political thought from 1700 to 1890. Uh, I mean, I suppose you could say Fanalon, but he doesn't get his own individual topic on that on that mm-hmm. course. Uh, Montesquieu does. He's the first single author uh, topic from France. And in that vein, we're hoping to do a little bit more of 18th century French stuff. I know I've been saying for a long time that we're going to do a representation app. The thought now is that we're going to do a kind of trilogy here, of which this is the first episode. The second episode in the trilogy is going to focus on French revolutionary thought. It's going to talk about CA. In the course of doing that, we're going to kind of set up the background for the representation episode that we're going to do after that. And and just in general, we're in a little bit of a French period. We haven't done a whole lot of French theorists. We haven't done a lot of episodes that are centered mainly around. We've done a little bit. I mean, there's been a little bit of Fanon. There's been a little bit of uh, of Fanon, but we haven't done a whole lot of French theory. So we're going to do some more French stuff in general this summer. There's going to be a lot of French this summer. Uh, I think that's kind of where where things are going, and we're going to try to bring Andrew back for some more of this because Andrew did a lot of French topics. Yep. (laughs) This past year. And a lot of work on representation, too. So hopefully we'll we'll have Andrew again. uh, And uh, and it should be a good time. Anybody got anything else before we go or can I can I wrap up? No, I mean, thank you for having me. No, it's been a pleasure and it's been an honor. All right. So we'll have you back real soon, Andrew. It was delightful to have you on. Uh, Thank you guys so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye.